This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. On today's show, we are continuing our A24 retrospective. This is our ninth edition of the series. You can listen to episodes 180, Enemy, 178, Red Rocket, or go way back to 108, A History of A24 Films to get the full backstory on the company. We're actually jumping ahead five movies in our queue to talk about the 2014 film Life After Beth, directed by Jeff Bania. The film tells the story of Zach Orfman, a young man who is devastated that his girlfriend Beth Slocum died after going on a hike alone and being bitten by a poisonous snake. As he continues to grieve and spend time with Beth's parents, something weird happens. Beth shows up again. Understandably, Zach is freaked out, but realizes there's nothing like thinking you lost someone you love and getting the ability to have them in your life again. Unfortunately, Beth is a zombie and slowly decomposing, which may or may not put a hindrance on their relationship. Before we go deeper into the film, I want to welcome back returning guests Jeff Ballmer and Pierre Frigon, the hosts of the podcast Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where they talk about movies. They were last heard on episode 147, Judas and the Mank. Welcome back, Jeff and Pierre. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm I'm doing great. Thank you for having us. And before but but before I say anything else, uh, I mostly know your A24 retrospective from recorded episodes. I didn't realize you recorded that whole thing live. That's awesome. Uh, the whole <laughs> intro, I thought that was all pre-recorded. <laughs> Yeah, we uh, Rachel and I take turns writing these uh, these scripts where uh, they take a little bit longer than I would like to, but uh, I'm I'm glad that you enjoy them. <laughs> I also uh, like A24. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, good. Then you're on the the right show today, Pierre. Perfect. Thank you so much. I was worried for a sec. now uh this isn't any regular guest appearance but it's actually a part of a super crossover episode this week you can hear rachel and i on your show and now you guys are here as well it's all a part of your master plan which since october you guys have been going through anna kendrick's filmography you had invited us on to talk about her two christmas movies happy christmas and noel and i guess the best way to describe this crossover is that it's anna kendrick's horror comedy movies we talk about the voices on your show, and now we're doing Life After Beth, an A24 film that has a supporting performance from Miss Kendrick. Uh, do you want to kind of talk a bit about how this idea sort of came to be and, and how this crossover episode uh, works for you? Yeah, um, it's uh, I, I don't want to go too behind the scenes here, but I may end up doing that. Um, so a long time ago, we had, well, not really that long ago. But uh, during during the opening of the current global situation, we had a podcast devoted to Leonardo DiCaprio, and we just went through his. We went through. Um, I think Leonardo DiCaprio is really interesting because he. You can kind of divide his entire career into three or four distinct uh, stages, and so we went through not f- his full filmography. But um, sort of a, a sort of like a cross section, including um, representative movies from his full filmography, and uh, we wanted to do that thing again because that was a big hit and we really enjoyed it. So we um, that one was Leonardo DiCaprio is one of Pierre's favorite actors. So sorry for speaking over you, Pierre. He but is. Um, 
Yeah, so that's so Pierre picked Leonardo DiCaprio for our first one. Well, I wanted to go and pick a pick the next actor that we would go through their full filmography. So I picked Anna Kendrick uh, because I'm a big Anna Kendrick fan. Uh, I don't know if anyone has known that, but just if if it wasn't clear already. Um, but the thing with Anna Kendrick is that a lot of her films have been very supporting roles. So going through her filmography, we kind of had to uh, shake up the um, shake up the format a bit so that we actually have something to talk about. Because as much as I love her in her first episode or her first movie, Camp, she's only in it for about ten minutes. So how do we do an hour long podcast on a movie where? She's only in the movie for 10 minutes. Um, So we started sort of working through that. And as we've gone forward, we've um, gone through like her early period. And we're sort of getting into parts where she's a lot more, a lot less of a supporting character and a lot closer to a lead. But um, this movie, Life After Beth, and the voices that we did on our show is um, this is sort of an interesting era of Anna Kendrick where uh, directors and casting agents tried to sort of cast her as a scream queen in horror movies. And these aren't actually the best examples of this, but they are still kind of in that area. And uh, it's kind of interesting to explore, you know, um, an actress who casting agents really can't seem to get a handle on until very late into her career and sort of what um, what she ends up being a part of until she really finds her footing. And this is definitely, this movie that we're about to talk about is definitely part of that, I think. I, I think you, you raise a really good point there. And it's one, we're going to keep this episode kind of like our traditional A24 retrospectives. But towards the end, I do want to kind of like hone in a bit on the kicking it with Kendrick style that you do to really talk about Anna Kendrick specifically. Because I think if if it wasn't for you two coming on, we probably wouldn't even mention Anna Kendrick at all. Because frankly, her part in this movie is so small. You mentioned her her first movie, Camp. She's maybe on screen for 10 minutes. She probably has half the time in this movie uh which is kind of like crazy. So in our usual A24 retrospectives, we wouldn't even acknowledge a performance that small. But because of mm-hmm. you guys being here, we'll make sure that we kind of uh, loop all that in together so that way we can fill the requirements for your project as well too. Well, I appreciate it. Now, before we kind of uh, get into this episode, I do want to kick it off with our tradition of our A24 four questions. When you had us on your show, you kind of nicked this idea and asked us, uh, but kind of tailored them to Anna Kendrick style. But now we're going to do uh, the traditional A24 four questions. So number one, what are your top three A24 films? Jeff, we'll start with you. So I had a lot of trouble with this. I think I initially narrowed it down to about seven, and then I tried to narrow it down to three that, admittedly, if you asked me tomorrow, these may or may not still be my top three, but I tried to keep it like three interesting ones, and to the best of my ability, ones that haven't been mentioned on this podcast before. Uh, I say that, and my first one is The Lighthouse, which I think has been mentioned by just about every guest of yours. So, um, yeah, it's easily the lighthouse is my number one from a 24. I think it's, uh, just, it's just such a surreal film and it's such an, it's probably the only movie I've felt I've seen that's like 
a real example of Lovecraftian horror, even though it's not actually based on anything that Lovecraft did. Uh, it's just, it's so interesting and like, it's really cool to watch. We did an episode on it a long time ago. And like the one thing that stood out to me is just how much the seagulls were in it. Just everything about that movie, every, all the details, everything. I'm, I'm really interested to see what Robert Eggers does next. The Northman, I guess, uh, based off of the lighthouse. Um, but you've had guests talk about the lighthouse before. So my number two is the death of Dick Long, which is uh, a really, really cool story. It's based on a real life story that um, I've always been very fond of because it's very funny in a really dark way. Um, And I think it's the death of Dick Long without spoiling anything. It's a, uh, it's a really cool look at, um, sort of small town policing and it's it plays out as this almost almost as a procedural but kind of as this mystery where you know what happened but you don't know how it happened and the only reason that the mystery sort of proliferates as long as it does is because every single person in the movie is incompetent which somehow or another actually makes the twist near the end uh come across even more powerfully and like honestly even more hilariously because it's basically a it's basically a comedy um and then my number three is uncut gems which is my favorite adam sandler performance and one of the most uh stressful films i think i've ever watched i remember uh i typically have in the past written a um a series of articles for the school newspaper at UBC Okanagan uh, going over what I think should win the Oscars in any given year. And uh, with Uncut Gems, I had written a very passionate piece about, about why Adam Sandler should win the Best Actor Oscar. And then he wasn't nominated. So I had to retract that. Well, that piece hadn't gone out yet, but I had to rewrite that to be about someone else but then uh, even but then inject even more passion into my Adam Sandler part of it because I was very, very upset that he hadn't been nominated for an Academy Award that year. Well, I think that's a, a great top three. What about you, Pierre? Um, I'd say my first is also The Lighthouse. I feel like me and Jeff really had a good experience <laughs> watching that movie, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I think like the... the uh, I mean, the... The performances from Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson were amazing. I think uh, the style, I love the absurdist yet dark style of it. That um, I can't remember the director's name, but that he goes for. I also saw his other movie, The Witch, which I really liked, but it was like way too dark for me. I thought this was like a good balance of like absurdist humor, but also like kind of terrifying. So I really like that movie. Um, my second's probably Ex Machina. Uh, just because I'd say the, I mean, I, I'm in computer science, so I thought like the talking about AI was really cool, even though it's like way different in the movie <laughs> than in like when I actually study. Um, but then also just like, Os- like I never really saw Oscar Isaac as like an amazing performer until then. And I thought the movie was just like really haunting. Um, and it kind of uh, leaves you with like a really like doubtful look at 
not just like I, I obviously it's a movie but it, it does make you think about the future i guess and also just like about like like what is like what is love uh you know like the song i guess um i feel really <laughs> weird saying that um but yeah like and makes you question that uh so that i thought that was really good uh and then my third is probably gonna be um the green knight uh that that movie was really really uh like i I don't know i didn't love it the first time but there's just something about it that just feels very beautiful to me um and mesmerizing like there's a there's a few scenes there that like i'll always remember i'm not really entirely sure how they made me feel but um like they're they're definitely like imprinted in my brain um and uh it's like one of those movies you have to see in theaters i think to really appreciate it so uh yeah great choices both of you i'm I'm really happy with them now the second question is what was your introduction to a24 jeff so um this is a hard question for me to answer because i think you've mentioned this on the podcast before uh a lot of times people's quote-unquote introduction to a24 is just realizing that a lot of movies they already like happened to be under the same banner and i think that's pretty much what happened for me um I looked through all of the list of A24 movies and I'm I'm dead certain that the very first A24 film I ever watched was Tusk because I was a big Kevin Smith fan and I remember I didn't see that one in theaters but um when the opportunity arose for me to see it the first thing I did was buy the Blu-ray and I saw it pretty much as soon as was possible so there is very close to zero chance that I had seen an A24 movie before I saw Tusk. So that was probably my first ever A24 film I ever watched. Um, Beyond that, I probably started to really become conscious of them as a company, either with the movie 8th Grade or Hereditary. And then I really drew the connection to this is a company I need to start actually watching and looking out for their releases with uh, Midsummer, which is obviously the second uh, movie from Ari Aster under them after Hereditary and was very, very, very difficult to keep out of my top three. Um, but I would say that Midsummer is probably where I became explicitly conscious of A24, but I clearly had seen things before. Yeah, I, I understand that. And that is something that I feel like a lot of people end up saying. What about you, Pierre? I think. I think it was actually the disaster artist, um, which is really weird to me because it, yeah, it doesn't feel like a lot of the A twenty four movies I've seen like in recent years. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I watched it because I was a, I, I read the book and I was a big fan of the the room. Um, so I think seeing James Franco's performance was really interesting. But I don't think I was made aware of like A twenty four until watching. It was, I think it was either, it might have been First Cow, actually, when we reviewed First Cow, but I was like, oh, like, this, they, they do have, like, a certain type of style. I don't know why it would be First Cow, because it's not necessarily a movie I found necessarily good or memorable, but I just remember thinking this is, like, this this makes sense now. Uh, it was either that or maybe Midsummer too, uh, but yeah. All right, and then number three, what director, dead or alive, would make a good A24 film? Jeff? 
So this one was shockingly easy to me. Sam Raimi. 100% Sam Raimi would be the perfect person for an A24 film. And I think that uh, the reason I would say that is Sam Raimi has definitely showed himself as someone who can play along well with big studios. He did Oz the Great and Powerful. He did three Spider-Man movies. He's currently doing a Doctor Strange. He's clearly a bigger director. He's not one that I don't know if any director could necessarily say they need a 24, but Sam Raimi definitely doesn't. He's well known enough in the industry. That said, I think that Sam Raimi's best work has always been independent or closer to independent. Um, Like even the old Spider-Man movies, which um, to me are some of my favorite movies I've ever seen. Those are big studio movies, but Sam Raimi definitely has a lot of creative control and how those work out. Um, But putting those aside, I think his best movies are things like The Evil Dead and Drag Me to Hell, which really are much closer to being independent uh, movies with a lot of creative control. And you're about to hear me talk a little bit more about this, but I personally believe that A24 is really good about giving directors control to do... Like, directors with very distinct styles um, are able to have a lot of creative control over their movies under A24. And I think that Sam Raimi would really flourish under that. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's what I would say. Sam Raimi, easily. That, that's a great pick. It's a really, really good like pick. One. Yeah. Pierre, what about you? Um, I don't know if this is a good pick, but I'd love to see Christopher Nolan make an A24 movie. No joke be- here, as Jeff was talking, I thought, oh, it'd be cool if Chris Nolan did one too. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like, I, was I was thinking that. I was going to pick a smaller, like, director but um after he said sam raimi it just made me think because i feel like nolan mm-hmm. is kind of getting too big for his bridges so this is that the saying <laughs> too big for his, something like that um so i feel like because i love his like i love the memento and i love the prestige when he does smaller stuff too so i'd be really interested to see him like really strip back like his the movie making his movie making process and just make something really small but uh ambitious um because especially after Tenet, I'd love to see him just like retract back to like his early days. I think it'd be really cool to see. You're you're not wrong in the slightest. Like I think that's that's been something that Rachel and I have talked about several times on the show where we're just like, hey, Nolan, we love you. Can you just kind of bring it back to basics just a little bit? Like great ideas. Just like you don't need $500 million with no sound editor. You need someone to say, no, you can't afford this. I feel like Inception was like his sweet spot. Like I feel like that was was quite big, yes. but it still felt really intimate. And yeah, I yeah, when Jeff was talking about, you know, having such a big director like Sam Raimi, I was like, you could definitely say that about Nolan too. So no, definitely good pick, both of you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah, I agree. And then the last question, what makes an A twenty four film, Jeff? So uh this kind of builds on my last um response as well. I think that A24 is really good about having creator focused films. Um, for example, like if I watch, when I watched Swiss Army Man, if someone else, uh, I have a, I have a friend who's a really big, um, who's a really big fan of the movie Swiss Army Man and by extension, a really big fan of Daniels, the directors who did that. Um, I feel like after watching that movie, 
I have a pretty good idea of what to expect from Daniels. And it makes me excited about their next movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is another A24 movie. Um, similarly, with Uncut Gems, um, when I saw Uncut Gems, uh, one, I had a pretty good idea of what I expected from um, the brothers whose names I'm forgetting at this moment. But they also directed the movie Good Time, another A24 movie, which was very similar in tone to Uncut Gems, if despite being a very different movie. So I feel like they're very good at... Um, encouraging directors to who have a specific style to really indulge in that specific style without um i would say without like being completely hands-off i think me and pierre have talked about it a lot on our show uh with with netflix for example netflix um gives people almost too much creative control like where, what I said about Swiss Army Man and Uncut Gems would not apply to something like Mank. When I watch Mank, I don't get the impression that this is David Fincher's, like, that this is David Fincher's style. When I watch The Five Bloods, yes, it's a Spike Jones, uh, it's a Spike Lee movie, but, like, I don't get the impression that this is anything like his other movies, really. It's like, I think A24 is really good about, um, letting directors do what they want, but also keeping them like reining them in enough that they don't go so overboard that there's too much of the director in that movie in a way. That's a good one. Uh, Pierre, what about you? Um, I, I feel like from what I've seen, a lot of them just kind of feel very like, empty if that makes sense other than like uncut gems actually and like does that they feel like kind of outliers but i don't know like i think that's why like first cow like first cow felt like a little too a24 if that makes sense i think that's why it like stuck out to me um and that like i feel like they'll do something that's different they'll do something that's like uh like i feel like the pacing is like usually kind of slow um and they feel very empty like that might that might just be like a side effect of the like low budget filmmaking process but um it like it gives you a, an uncomfortable amount of time to think while watching the movie if that makes sense and uh i i it's uncomfortable but like it's it's enough that like it keeps drawing me in um yeah and that's why i think that like what really sticks out to me nice yeah th that's a that's a good one too i love hearing everyone's different responses to that question because it's so open-ended did anyone leave a message for me today the slow comes Nope, not today. I think they're avoiding me. That's my wife! Okay. Where is she? Listen. She is not dead. I went to her grave. There's a hole in the ground. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. She's resurrected. She's resurrected. She's resurrected. Okay, and that's better. Why? Why is that better? It's from the Old Testament. Why is all my stuff in boxes now? Beth, you're so beautiful. I'm so happy you're back. You don't want to eat me, do you? Not right now. No, I mean like really eat me. Around. Okay. It's not fun. It's weird. End of kiss, guys. What's going on? But let's get into this movie. Life After Beth was directed by Jeff Bania in his directorial debut. Before that, he was best known as co-writing the David O. Russell film I Heart Huckabees. The movie stars Dane DeHaan as Zach, the boyfriend who can't decide if he's happy that Beth is back or deeply mortified that Beth's parents may have unleashed something far bigger than they expected as more and more dead people start showing back up again. Aubrey Plaza plays Beth, 
right at the tail end of her run of the hits at Com Parks and Recreation, as the resurrected girl who can't understand why her parents won't let her out of the house during the day. Comedy legends John C. Riley and Molly Shannon play the Slocums, who are just happy to have their little girl back. In what was pretty coincidental time, as Sundance Festival is just wrapping up right now, A24 acquired the film during this 2015-2014 edition of the festival, which included a deal with DirecTV to allow the cable company a 30-day window for people to rent from their service before a theatrical release. The film had a limited theatrical release beginning August 15th, 2014. This is going to be a spoiler-filled episode, so if you've not watched the film, we suggest doing that first. I think the first thing I want to discuss is the film's genre choices. It is a romance film that is backed by horror and comedy. Did any of the three genres I mentioned work for you, or was it kind of all of a jumbled mess? Jeff, let's start with you. Um, that's an interesting question. I, uh, I think it was a bit jumbled, but I actually did. I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I may be the person out of the four of us who liked this movie the most. Uh, I, I thought that the romance parts really worked. In, in my opinion, because I thought this movie, uh, this movie sort of, it it's Dane DeHaan's character coming to terms with the fact that he lost his girlfriend in very slow motion. And I think that for what it's worth and the way that that plays out, I think it does really work, actually. Um the comedy was pretty funny. I actually did laugh a lot in this movie. The horror was basically non-existent. I feel like this was basically a horror film in name only, but that's not that bad of a thing because I don't care that much about horror. So I wasn't too disturbed by that. Um, but yeah, I think that like this movie was a little jumbled on the whole, I don't think it was very good, but I actually did enjoy it a lot. Interesting. Rachel, what about you? I think it's, I put it in the same peg as um, like Shaun of the Dead or something. It's like, it's kind of like a zombie comedy satire. I'm not saying it's anywhere near as good as Shaun of the Dead, mind you. It's just that it reminds me of those kinds of movies where it's um, action zombie stuff, but it's, to me, it's meant to be comedy. I agree with Jeff. I don't think it's a horror movie in the slightest. I don't know. Is that actually what it's supposed to be? Like, it's listed as horror? Is that what? It- well, I don't know. You're using zombies and, you know, people dying and things like that. By nature, it is horror. I see. It has elements of horror. But, yeah, I would say horror of the three genres are the – it's the least of the three. Yeah, and, like, I think when I – I didn't know anything about the movie before going in it. I mean, even with Aubrey Plaza being the main person – like when you see John C. Riley and you see Molly Shannon, in my head it instantly just went, okay, it's like a comedy. Like that's I just kind of assumed that that's where it was going. Um, and I think as a comedy, like I, I I laughed a few times. Like there were um, some funny bits that, and when it when I did laugh, it was like a genuine laugh, not like a oh that's funny. Um, overall, yeah, I think Jeff, you're probably right. You probably like the movie the most out of the four of us. Um, it's it's fine. Like I I didn't hate it or anything like that but yeah not not really my thing um but i mean yeah comedy zombie movie that's always a good like a zombie land kind of good fun movie to watch now pierre i'm curious about you now where where do you sort of fall on the does it work or not work spectrum 
Uh, I don't even know, man. Like, it was just like, it was fascinating <laughs> to watch, like, just trying to process what the creative team was thinking when they wrote this movie. Like, I can't tell if they're like geniuses for keeping me so invested despite not understanding what was going on the whole time. Or, like, were they really, like, was it just like, was it bad or was it so, like, did they do it in Because I was like, it was paced terribly. And, like, nothing made sense plot-wise, like, from what I could tell. At least, like, uh, it made sense mostly until, like, halfway through. And then I got really, really confused. Um, but I was still, like, like engaged the whole time. And it, like, really confused me because I felt like I shouldn't be, but I was. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't really know what to say. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily think I would hire this, like, director slash writer, like, for another movie. Because, like, I don't think they could pull it off, like, the same way. But, like, it's it's kind of like lightning in a bottle in a weird way. And, yeah, <laughs> maybe not even lightning. Just, like, I don't know, a lamer version of lightning. I don't know. I think it's one it's of those movies. in a bottle? Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think it's one of these movies, though, that it's, like, you can't, you're not really meant to look at logic. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's supposed to be. There, there are definitely a lot of plot holes in it, but I think that you just, it's one of those, you just ignore it and you sit back and watch it. Like, it's like the epitome of a popcorn movie. That's the way I took it anyways. Like, it's not meant to be serious. It's not meant to be, and I mean, maybe that's taking away from the movie. Maybe that's being really disrespectful to it. But to me, it was just that. It was just like kind of a fun ride of a film. Um, Dakota, what do you think of it though? Yeah, I, I really didn't care for it. And <laughs> I think the biggest issue is while I laughed, a bunch of times. I laughed more times at this movie than I did at The Voices, which is also, you know, another horror comedy. But we'll get to that. You'll have to listen to Classic Movie Lives to hear our, our discussion on that. But yeah, I laughed quite a few times. But the problem, my biggest problem with this movie is the comedy superseded literally everything. It basically felt to me like it was one long sketch. I am, I am almost confident that this entire movie was improvised. I didn't read about if it was or not, but considering the talent that was involved and the way it played out, I basically sort of looked at each scene as, okay, they have an objective of this is what the character's needs are. This is what they need to accomplish by the end of it and go. And it sort of felt like too often they were riffing. They were trying to, you know, hit multiple punchlines. They would repeat the same joke in different ways over and over again And all of it was kind of to the detriment of actually advancing the plot because, as you have now just said, both of you have said, there are a lot of plot holes in this, especially in the second half of this film, because, you know, it's great, you know, it's easy to do a setup. It's easy to, you know, great, here's a zombie, here's a love story, here's someone dead, now they're back, what do you do, sort of thing. That's a a really interesting setup. The problem is, how do you narratively connect it all? And then how do you have a plausible either explanation or resolution? And frankly, I think that they really missed the mark on both ends. So while it starts out as a very interesting comedy experiment, it ultimately fails as a narrative feature, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Do you think that, like, I didn't actually think about the improv thing. Like that, that maybe it, it was improv. It felt so much like every scene with John C. Riley and Molly Shannon. Like if I was a director and I cast those two, I would be an idiot not to let them True, riff yeah. on material. Yeah. But like, and same with Aubrey Plaza. I've seen the outtakes of, of Parks and Rec. I know how funny she is. <laughs> Dane DeHaan 
was the only one that sort of seemed to be trying to ground the movie at all. And I know it's funny reading the letterbox reviews of like how much everyone hates this guy, but he was probably my favorite part. <laughs> they he's hate the only him? one that was actually making logical choices. Yeah. He was like, without him, the movie really wouldn't like genuinely wouldn't work. I think without him, because it would have been him. a bad, funnier die sketch. Yeah. I like he really needed him. I don't know why, but I feel like Dana Haunt just attracts not liking if I mean, like not liking him. It's really confusing because I think he was really good at, like, if you've seen Chronicle, he was, like, amazing at making me not like him. Um, and it's the I same thing in The Amazing a, Spider-Man too. He's got a bit of a punchable face, and I hate he saying does, that. People, yeah. But he kind of does, doesn't he? It's just, like, he has that face. And I think if he's being in the role of, like, a bad guy or, like, a creep, like, not necessarily a bad guy, but, like, just kind of, like, a creepy... Like I'm thinking, like Nightcrawler. Uh, Nightcrawler. He is a bad guy, Nightcrawler. But you know what I mean. Like just like kind of a like a creepy protagonist. I think that's where he works best. But in this, I I didn't mind him. Of all of the things that if I want to pick at, of I, it's not him. He's not the one that I I have the most objections to in this movie. No, I actually think he really anchors this movie yeah. because, as I said, the part that um worked for worked best for me in this movie was the um was the romance and like the slow motion dissolution of his basically worldview as you know, he's, he's trying to deal with the death of his, um, of his girlfriend. And that happens basically at the same time as him getting a second chance. And I thought he was really good at that. And more importantly, like that, those entire, all of those beats of that story would not have hit if, Dane DeHaan hadn't nailed it in that role. Like if you'd gotten anyone, um, I don't even know if I, I don't even know exactly what it was. I can't say less likable. It's more like just less able to do that role. I don't think it would have worked because Aubrey Plaza is fine, but she's very passive in this movie. And Dane DeHaan is really the one who has to um, drive that plot forward. He seemed like he was the only one that was really actually following the script to me because, like, yeah, like you were saying, Aubrey Plaza, her basically whole character is you're restarting from zero. You mm-hmm. can't advance the scene because you have to bring everyone back to the level that you're at. And so that was what her motivations were. And then w- with the parents, both of them was let's ignore everything. We can't, we can't acknowledge everything. You know, the elephant in the room is not actually here. We can't tell anyone about what's actually happening. And Dane DeHaan was the only one that was actually really going through the steps of, he basically was doing, you know, the the seven stages of, of grieving, but I wouldn't call it grieving, really. It was the seven stages of accepting that your your girlfriend is a zombie. <laughs> I yeah. Don't, I don't know how else to word it, but he does, he does a really good job of being like, okay, I'm going to be skeptical. Okay. You know what? Maybe what I'll try accepting. Okay. I'm fully on board with this. Okay. Now I'm a little suspicious. Now I'm very suspicious. Now I need to find a solution. And now I found a solution. Mm-hmm. Like he, he clearly has a, a clear character arc going through all of those different emotions. And you can see from scene to scene what he's trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I also really liked the older brother in this. Um, he was hilarious. I really liked him. Like when I was saying, like there are a few things that I laughed at. It was like it was him, him um, that was the actor's name, Matthew Gray Goobler, Gubler, Goobler. Um, she's the lead in Criminal Minds, which is crazy. Yeah, it's not. I because I looked him up after and I didn't realize it was the same guy, but he oh. was really, really great in it. Like his 
I think his like I like that he kind of just pops in in and out and like he's very funny in it. Also, if I can uh, just shout him out, he's in another movie by Jeff Baina, which I absolutely wouldn't recommend. Actually, Horse Girl. It's one of it's an awful movie, <laughs> but um, in that movie, he plays this random dude who comes to a party and all he wants to do is show off his mixtape and show off his rapping skills. And it is the most hilarious character of any movie in 2020, personally, I think. And we all know a guy like that, don't we? We absolutely <laughs> all do. All right. So then if the horror aspect didn't really work and we sort of seem a little mixed on whether the comedy added or detracted from the movie. The romance seemed to be the one thing that maybe all three of us can kind of agree on actually sort of worked for this. It was, my, it was definitely like the, the most interesting part of the movie. I don't, and it, I think like this, like the corniness of it actually was more funny when they were trying to be funny, if that makes sense. So it would have been cool if they maybe leaned into that more and like tried to, I don't know. Well, I guess they leaned into it because that was the whole point of the movie, I guess. But like leaned into the corniness more, maybe. Like I would like it would have been cool if like like maybe he took her on more dates or something because I thought the hike was hilarious. Like the whole that whole dynamic of like her like her with the washing machine on her back or whatever, like <laughs> and then like trying to enjoy the day despite you know how ridiculous the whole thing was. I thought that was really funny. I guess I want to know, we're going to get into real spoiler territory here, how the three of you sort of reconciled the ending of this movie. And I don't mean, uh, I I don't mean that uh, Zach killing his girlfriend. I mean, we get this idea that the reason that she came back to life is because uh, Beth's parents got their Haitian houseworker to perform a voodoo spell to bring her back to life. Except for the fact that while that sounds very interesting and a little racist that they basically just try to blame it on a black person. Uh, and, and The only black culture. person in the movie. Mind the, you. the only black person. Yes. When they, when uh, Zach goes to confront this Haitian uh, houseworker, it's revealed that, she uh, ran away and she had nothing to do with this. And in fact, it's quite offensive that you're even suggesting that because they're Haitian, they had anything to do with this. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. They sort of played on our own stereotypes to reverse it, except for we're not really given any sort of explanation afterwards of what happened. And then when Beth dies, when, when Zach eventually kills her, um, when she's gone full zombie, I guess she is like the uh, alpha zombie. And if it's like you kill the head of the vampires, all the vampires die and all the other zombies seem to miraculously die. So like, I'm just so confused about what really happened. I wonder if the three of you have any interpretation about what actually happened to this movie or am I on the the right page and they just, you know, skipped a few scenes. I'm not gonna lie, I didn't actually realize that she was like the head zombie. That once she goes, the other, maybe I just clocked out at that point in the movie. <laughs> but I, I didn't even realize that that was the thing. Yeah, I was confused as to to like why everything had happened in the first place. And I do think it was slightly cheap that forget saying it's the only black person, the only non-white characters in the movie were meant to be the cause of all of this. 
nonsense. So yeah, it was very, um, I don't, I, I don't know how to reconcile the ending either, to be honest. Like I, I kind of took the whole movie and again, it's probably disrespecting the movie, but I just took the whole movie as don't think about it too much. She shoots or he shoots her. She's dead. Okay. We're done. Like you can go home now and you're done with the movie. Um, yeah, I, I guess I just didn't even think about it that hard because clearly the whole alpha zombie thing just flew right over my head. Um, <laughs> I think that like, uh, Maybe, maybe this is not okay to say, but I think that the movie works a lot better if you disregard a lot of that. Like, I first off, like Rachel, I didn't realize at the end that she was the alpha zombie. Like, that, I, I must have also been clocked out at that point. Um, but beyond that, I, first off, I really, I really liked that the simple, that there was no simple explanation with the only non white person in the movie. Uh, happened to be the cause of everything. I liked that that wasn't a simple explanation and that that was uh, the one character who thought that might have been a simple ex- explanation uh, got pretty like heavily told no by her brother. I liked that. But to me, this movie works a lot better if um, all of this is happening kind of tangentially to some actual zombie outbreak that were is just isn't explained. Um, and so that's how I kind of chose to watch this movie is when he's going around and there are other zombies in the town, I just kind of imagined these were unrelated incidents and that whatever was happening was affecting them, but also affecting Beth and that it just sort of kind of wasn't important. Like if you're watching a zombie movie, normally what you're expecting is you want to get the beginning of the zombie outbreak and then what happens during the zombie outbreak. And depending on the movie, maybe you want to see the end of the zombie outbreak, how it's all resolved at the end. And I kind of felt that this movie works better as a side story to something like that. Like if we're watching The Walking Dead, but if we were only watching episodes like four, five, and six, like this this has nothing to do with the rest of the series. This is a side story where no one quite knows what's going on, but this is how they're dealing with it. It's like a slice of life kind of section of a bigger zombie apocalypse world. Exactly. That. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can take I that. Would be, I would be fully on board for that, except for the fact that they also try to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, I don't think that it necessarily fully works. And like, like I said, I don't think the movie is good because of a lot of the choices in this movie. But I think that where the movie works best, I'm able to see it that way. Mm. That's fair. What about you, Pierre? Did you have any issues with the way they tried to resolve it? Yeah, it was really... I didn't realize she was the alpha zombie either. I, I thought they just like... I'm starting to think maybe she's not. If all three of us did. <laughs> maybe Dakota. Maybe <laughs> you're reading one of this movie. Like, I, now that I think about it, it seems like it was implied because I remember a big point of confusion for me was like, why is this all wrapping up right, like, right after she dies, right? Like, um, I thought that was weird. But then also, like, I don't know, they just, they just skipped over a lot of stuff. Like, uh, I, I, I wish they just, there wasn't, like, a breakout and it was just her. Because I thought once, once they started trying to, like, build up 
the the apocalypse or whatever it just started to lose a lot of focus and i got really confused and my mind wandered to other things um when like i think the core of the movie like they established at the start was that it's about a guy who uh misses his girlfriend or whatever and uh at by the end of the movie it didn't really feel like that even though like i guess it kind of resolved in that way um it still felt um like i don't know unresolved and unfocused especially because you know i think the whole insertion of anna kendrick's character was just really jarring and like kind of weird to me um and also uh like the whole fake out with his parents dying and stuff was just like, it didn't really, it was very shocking, but it didn't really have any emotional resonance because like it just happened so quickly. And then it was like taken back like 10 minutes later. So yeah, it, it's, it felt like they like, they, they didn't have a script for the third act and they just kind of wrote around it and hoped that it would kind of make sense. Like it's the same thing with like John C. Riley's character dies off screen. Right. Which I thought was like, really confusing because he had a i think he had like the third biggest role in the movie and he just he just disappears and it's like it's like john c Riley had like a scheduling thing or they had to do reshoots <laughs> and he's just they're just like oh let's just like do a throwaway line where uh turns out she ate him or something like that and go from there so yeah stuff stuff like that just felt very they didn't know what they were doing at the end yeah, I, I, I completely agree. It's the, the only reason why I was calling it the alpha zombie because it literally was as soon as she died in the next scene, everything got better again and the rest of the zombies seemingly disappeared. Now we could chalk it up to uh, this uh, tactical team managing to kill every single zombie that came back to life. But in reality, why did the power go out? Why is it back? All that sort of stuff. So that was just me kind of like, putting details together like oh she must have been the first zombie so as soon as she died everything got better i I guess like i i don't know and this is also world it doesn't seem to follow the rules of regular zombie rules which is if you get bitten you turn into a zombie unless your brain gets completely destroyed or or something i don't know because john c Riley gets eaten but just stays dead molly shannon loses a hand but she's okay like you would think that these people would also turn into zombies, which sure, you know, I have no problem if a movie wants to play with the tropes and conventions of, you know, a subgenre of a movie like zombies, but like we don't get any sort of acknowledgement that they're doing it in a subversive way. It just sort of seems like, oh no, these zombies can kill people and that's it. I also was wondering, I thought that that's kind of where the movie was going um, after he had, was it Dane's character has um, sex with Audrey Plaza? I was like, maybe that's oh, where yeah. it's going. Like they're going to, he's going to turn into, I, I didn't know. But I wonder now after, after you saying that Dakota, it's like, would the movie have worked better if it was a more blatantly kind of satirical version of a zombie movie? Like where they acknowledge that there are certain rules that they've seen in a movie or something like that, like, or, or yes. whatever. And then, you know, they go from there. Like I I've seen some, I can't think of the name of it now, but I've seen some like Korean movies and TV shows that do something similar to that. It's like, they, there's one in particular I'm thinking of, and I I really can't remember the name of it, but it's like, they, they acknowledge what is in film, like what, what typical zombie train to Busan kind of things happen and being like, okay, that, that's how we're going to work it in real life kind of thing. Like that's how it's going to be. Um, yeah, and I wonder actually if this movie maybe would have worked a little bit better if it had leaned into being a satire versus just a funny 
zombie movie. I 100% think it would have. But Pierre, you had mentioned Anna Kendrick, so I think we should kind of transition to that. The the main reason, like I said off the top of the show, that you guys are here is this is part of your Kicking It With Kendrick series. And as I said, if it wasn't you guys coming on the show, we wouldn't even discuss Anna Kendrick, but I feel we actually need to. Her role, she shows up as a childhood friend of Zach's and basically is there as a plot device for Beth to be jealous at and then later on at the end of the movie for Zach to move on with his life from. What did you guys think of Anna Kendrick's performance in this film? Um, so there wasn't a lot of it, which is always a shame, I think. But this is... Uh, Sort of, this This is part of, uh, this is one of her collaborations with Aubrey Plaza, which, of which there are a lot, I'm re- I'm realizing. I think they, I mean, they're clearly very good friends, but also they've been in a lot of movies together. And um, I think uh, in this movie, I think she's almost kind of misused. Because she's there and she's able to be this um, this sort of awkward character that I, I guess she's supposed to be the other girl to Dane DeHaan, but she really isn't. She just sort of exists to give a little bit of extra tension to Dane DeHaan's relationship with a zombie, which is already a relationship with a zombie, so does it really need more tension? Um, I don't really know. Um, yeah, I think like she exists and she's fine. She just sort of like doesn't do very much. This is, um, I mean, Pierre said that like the whole third act of it, of this movie seems like they didn't really know what they were doing or like, like they didn't really know where to go with it. And I feel like Anna Kendrick is kind of, unfortunately a casualty of that in this movie it kind of feels like she's like uh, to what you were saying jeff about um them being buddies like it just feels like she kind of did this as a favor almost because you literally could have gotten any actress to do this you didn't need anna kendrick like especially if you consider where this is in her filmography she's already done like this isn't one of her first roles where it's you know she's just kind of building up a portfolio it's like she's done quite a bit at this point um Mm -hmm. to be in this part and so it is kind of surprising she would do such a tiny little role for that really not that it's nothing to the movie because there is a bit of a point to her character but um you know at, at that stage in her career she wouldn't have needed to do something like that um and i my guess would have to be like it's just a, a bit of a favor to either the director or to Aubrey Plaza, Audrey Plaza, sorry. Well, um, yeah, very, yeah. very notably, this is post Pitch Perfect. Yeah. I, I just wanted to look it up very quick. I was just like, maybe this was at the beginning because the thing with Anna Kendrick that I'll like give her credit, her face does not change. She looks the exact same since she did in like the first movies to today. So it's kind of hard to pinpoint at what point in her career this is. Um, but yeah, I, I found her really, um, quite juvenile in this movie like they made her very very childish like incredibly childish in the the brief period of time that we see her in she's incredibly childish and quite flaky almost but i i guess that's kind of the point of her mm-hmm. this is the type of movie that like 
there's a lot of cameos in this and, and ones that I think people probably wouldn't even realize as much. So like you've got Jim O'Hare, who's from Parks and Rec. He shows up as the mailman. Mm-hmm. Rob Delaney is a news anchor. Adam Paley is the the diner, the guy that works in a diner. Uh, Gary Marshall shows up at the very end as the grandfather. Yeah. And it looks like there was some deleted scenes with Alia Shawkat as well. So if we look at this role as nothing more than a cameo compared to like the other ones. The only difference is she's in two scenes. I guess that's where she sort of fits in. But yeah, you look at Jeff Baina's career. He's married to Aubrey Plaza now, but like he's done, I think three or four movies. All of his movies sort of seem similar as in let's bring my friends in for, for even small parts for, for day roles. I didn't know they were married. That kind of makes more sense. Don't know why it makes sense. I just didn't have any idea they were married. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> what about you, Pierre? How does uh, how does this fit in for Anna Kendrick for you? Um, yeah, I thought it was terrible. I, I, I <laughs> the role was just really kind of sick to me. Like the whole because I thought the theme of it was like like moving on, I guess, right? But then like it it felt kind of a little weird to have him be into someone else. Uh as like the way he moves on, I, I guess that's a common trope, but like, it was weird. Like at the end when he's saying goodbye to her, like at her grave. And then he literally goes to his, to Anna Kendrick's car and is like, Hey, you want to go out or something like that? I was just kind of like, like gross. Um, and also like the whole, the whole flirting in the cafe was like, what was he like? I like your skin or something like that. Like yeah. that was, that was kind of awkward. I, I think that was on purpose, but. I don't know, little things like that, and, like, also how the parents were, like, trying, like, they, what, did they specifically save her so that he could be with her? Um, I don't know what was going on there, but that was also kind of weird, because they were, like, looked like they were kind of, like, shipping them hard. Uh, anyways, I, it was just, like, kind of overall just a, a weird, awkward role. Um, she was in, like, six movies that year, too, so it was just kind of, like, like, you couldn't have just been in five. Like, did you really need this one? Like, it wasn't like she was desperate for work or anything. So, um, yeah, definitely like a, a bottom tier Anna Kendrick role for sure. Okay. Uh, and I guess the question that you guys always ask each other is, where does it stand for you in terms of Anna Kendrick's performance and her overall filmography as far as movies you like? It might actually be the worst one for me. <laughs> like, wow. role-wise. Movie-wise, there's definitely worse movies, but uh, yeah, role-wise, like, it, it was just such an odd role. I don't know. So, uh, in terms of movies, like, completely irrespective of role, I put it um, pre- pretty mid. Like, I, I, I like this okay. Uh, I thought it was, like, you know, not not great, but I didn't think it was horrible. In terms of her role in it, I would put this not at the bottom, but pretty near the bottom, I think. It's, I just, you know, more so than a lot of other movies. And I know I've said this before on our show, like, Anna Kendrick didn't need to be this role. And, like, she didn't need to be in this movie. This role could have been done by just about anybody. And, like, she doesn't bring that much to it. I enjoy watching her on screen, but like, I don't think she did that much. I think I would probably put it in terms of where I liked her uh, in in this movie. I would probably put it, yeah, I guess I guess pretty near the bottom, not not below her, 
one year of high school movies, but like maybe just above that. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. We're going to take a short break and when we come back, we're going to have some fun with some games. This is Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about movies that just came out. I'm your host, Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Pierre. Pierre, what movie are we talking about today? Jeff, what are you talking about? We're recording an ad. Oh, is this an ad for Kicking It With Kendrick, the show where every week we bring on a different expert to talk about the filmography of Anna Kendrick? No, no, this is an ad for Losing It Over Leo, the show where we chronologically go through Leonardo DiCaprio's career from childhood to his Oscars. Are you entirely certain this isn't an ad for CML Classics, episodes of Classic Movies Live that we recorded two years ago? Well, I guess it's an ad for all four at this point. Well, you know what? That just works out, because you can find all four of those over on the Heatwave Radio channel on Spotify. Nice. All right, so we're back, and now we're going to play our, our favorite games, Create a Double Bill, and Would You Rather. So we're going to start with the, the Double Bill. Uh, Jeff, as our guest, let's start with you. Oh, I'm so glad you let me go first, because I'm pretty sure I'm cheating, and uh, I'm going to take a Double Bill away from all of you guys. Uh, I decided that a good Double Bill here would be... Um, I wanted to do movies that heavily feature dismemberment, but less heavily feature Anna Kendrick. So I was going to double bill this with the voices. Oh, <laughs> look at you. Um, yeah, I think both of these, I mean, for one thing, as we've already sort of mentioned several times this episode, uh, they're two of Anna Kendrick's only horror. Co- they're Anna Kendrick's only, or at least biggest profile horror comedy movies. And I think that I think they actually do work pretty well together. Uh, I did not watch these back to back. I watched them on subsequent days, but um, I think these do kind of work well because they are they do both have a romantic subplot. Although with Life After Beth, the romantic subplot is kind of the biggest subplot. Where with the voices, I would say the romantic subplot is a little bit in the background. I think a lot of the voices, and we'll talk about it, uh, we talked about it a lot more on our show. Um, the With the voices, the romantic elements are really more in service of the, uh, se- the, the central theme, which is really examining Ryan Reynolds' character. Um, but I think that these, uh, I think both of those movies have a very strong, they have a very strong male lead who's like, really devoted to that romantic subplot. Um, they ha- And then they have um, Anna Kendrick, obviously, and they're both sort of like vaguely horror comedies uh, of differing degrees. So I think those work well together. That would be my personal double bill. Listen to Classic Movies Live to hear more about <laughs> The Voices. Please do. Pierre, what about you? Um, I'd actually... I'd- Pair this with a movie called uh, Ingrid Goes West. Um, it's from 2017. Uh, it stars Aubrey Plaza, so I guess that's why I'm I'm choosing it. It just feels right. Like I, I feel like a lot of the 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 tone is like very similar, but it's just like I think Ingrid Goes West just 
does it better. I don't know how to say it because I think they're technically like both aiming to be dark comedies. Um, but I and I think uh, I actually really liked Aubrey Plaza in this movie in both movies. Um, and I don't know. I, I feel like they they work together, but obviously, I think Ingrid Goes West would just be like it, it'd be like. Uh, the second one because you want to watch the the worst one first and then like uh you know i feel like angry goes west might kind of perfect some of the things that in some ways uh this movie was going for i already forgot the name of this movie um (laughs) life after beth yeah there you go it's right there um but yeah it's that forgettable of (laughs) i feel bad now but yeah, it's like, I feel like uh, if this director maybe honed his skill more, he could make a movie like Ingrid Goes West, I guess. Ingrid Goes West is a great film and one that is genuinely unnerving. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think this movie could have been unnerving too um, if you went in certain ways. But yeah, it's a great movie. You should check it out. Rachel, what about you? So I was going to do like a zombie movie, like 28 Days or... Uh... Zombieland, Shaun of the Dead, that's what I was saying before. But just actually, as we were talking, it made me think of Pet Cemetery, um, which was, what is it now, 2019, I think it came out in. Um, I, yeah, I would go Pet Cemetery, and it's based off of a Stephen King novel that talks about a graveyard where uh, anything that you bury in it can come back to life. Um, instead of a, I mean, Life After Beth kind of hints at Haitian uh, mythology. This one uses Pet Cemetery is more focused on uh, indigenous um, spirituality and and um, the folk tales from there from that culture. So yeah, I, I think Pet Cemetery would work nicely with this. It's it's not a comedy, obviously. Um, the movie itself is okay. Like I actually think it gets a worse rap than it probably deserves, but it's um it's a good story and I think it was done decently well it's a different thing to life after Beth. It's not, like I said, it's not a comedy. It's not lighthearted. Um, but just kind of that similar idea of bringing things back to life. And this one actually does kind of explain what the deal is. unlike life after Beth. I think that's a, a really interesting pick. It's so funny. I thought the more obvious picks would be made. Yeah. So I, went out of my way to not make an obvious pick but we clearly all had that same (laughs) idea um yeah this was a tough choice only because i can name any number of horror comedy films even with the sub sub genre of zombie horror comedies uh instead i'm going with one of my all-time favorite horror comedies in mel brooks 1974 film young frankenstein Uh, i think it does a better job at deconstructing the genre and being actually funny that's a really good pick actually really really like that pick i'm sad i didn't think about that one that's a really good (laughs) choice does that does that count as me being bougie right a little bit because i don't think you've picked anything that's been in like the 90s forward but you know it's fine (laughs) Um, but no that's actually a really 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 good shit though i genuinely wish i had thought about that well thank you it was either that or her zombie land (laughs) yeah i think like i'm actually really surprised this week and i'll say um the last one we did which was or was it Enemy? There was one that I, I definitely thought we were all going to have overlap on. And this one was another one that I was pretty confident everyone would choose like a handful of the same movies. So I'm really glad we didn't, though. Everyone chose something pretty cool. Yeah. 
All right. So the next question is a would you rather game? So Jeff, what would you rather question do you have for us? Okay. So I, uh, I'm realizing as I, as I wrote out my would you rather questions, mine are kind of depressing. So I hope that, uh, that doesn't end up being too awful. But uh, as I said last week to Alex, it will not be the first time we've had a really dark and depressing <laughs> would you rather question. All right, perfect. So this is this is actually the lighter of the two that I prepared for the less light one. You're going to have to go back. Uh, listeners are going to have to go back to the voices. But uh, this is this is more like upbeat and cheery compared of, of my two. So following a major event that led to the dissolution of a friendship or relationship. Would you rather have that relationship end completely, like never talk to that person again, or have the other person completely forget that event and go on as if nothing happened? Oh. Interesting. Would I know that, like, like I'd still have the memory that something bad had happened? They just don't know. Yes. Okay. Interesting. I I like that question a lot because that really makes you think because in my head I go, oh, obviously I would like to still remain friends with them. But if the disillusionment was the cause of of something that this person did to really hurt me, would I want to have to constantly live with this reminder of that this person has the capability to do something so hurtful that in theory I would never want to see them again? Wow, that's that's a tough one, Jeff. See, I went the other way, Dakota, and I was thinking... If I knew and they didn't know, you could be like super vindictive and just do terrible shit to them and not feel bad about it because, you know, they were shitty to you. That's because you're- I know, it is. It really shows the different sides of, <laughs> of you and I. Um, I think I'd, I'd go for the former. I think I would go with, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't want them to die. Um, I, I would assume I don't want them to die. Um, but- yeah, I would I would rather just be kind of one and done with it. If it was that bad of a of a fallout, like if it was so bad that you're never going to speak to that person ever again in your life, then yeah, I would rather it just be kind of done and dusted versus them coming back and me being tempted to be a vindictive bitch to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I actually agree with you Rachel and I would probably be the be on the same page as that. What about you Pierre? Oh uh, man, that's pretty basic. Jess was really good. Uh, would you? <laughs> would you rather? It's kind of a reference to Shauna that I did too. But like, would you rather? Uh, I don't know. Like, let your friend die, or if you uh, had the equipment to properly contain them slash feed them, would you? Would you rather uh, have them as a zombie, like pet, basically? <laughs> I guess. That's like Shaun of the Dead, kind of. Like at the end, he keeps. Yeah. Uh, they keep him kind of chained up if 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 my friend is not going to bite me or kill me then yeah i don't mind taking care of them assuming it's a good friend not like you know just some random person i know yeah i wouldn't mind having like a pet zombie uh i would be the opposite you ain't catching me slipping uh (laughs) i am not gonna get accidentally bit sorry best friend uh you were going with the rest of the zombies into the hole in the ground if it's the alpha zombie too, then you would want to make sure you probably want to end it because that would be, you know, for the greater good kind of situation. And like, I'm, I've never been that good with pets anyway. So as much as I, you know, <laughs> would love having a pet, I think that that would be a lot of work, and I don't know that I would 
I, I think I think it would be a lot. I, I think I would just like cut that off. Just say thank you, but no thanks. Literally cut that off. <laughs> <laughs> Pierre, what about you? How would you answer your own question? Uh, I don't know. I, I'd feel bad because I feel like you get bored. So like, I'd I need to get him like a zombie friend or something. But then that would imply <laughs> that like, you know, I'd have to kill someone else and i'm not willing to join him in the zombie like zone so um yeah i think it'd be better to just like cut loose maybe like give them like a place oh maybe like give them a place in like the forest like in a cabin somewhere i think that could be nice like where they can't eat anyone i think that'd be cool i don't know send them to a farm upstate or something yeah like like (laughs) like they said where they send those dogs or something (laughs) instead of and so, oh, the dogs like at the farm, like having fun in the fields and stuff. Be like the zombies. <laughs> Just a paddock of zombies running around, bumping into each other. <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be kind of like mildly enjoyable for them. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, I just realized you didn't answer your own question either, actually. Oh, uh, for me, it's pretty easy. I think that, like, if something happened where I don't want to talk to someone again, as much as I would really. As much as I like hate having that friendship completely die, uh, I would want that to end. Like I, I wouldn't, I would not be comfortable if I knew something about someone and they forgot whatever that event was. I would not be comfortable continuing that friendship. Fair enough. Or relationship, whatever it is. <laughs> Um, all right. My question is also basic. So don't worry, Pierre. It was, um, I was struggling a little bit with this and I decided to go with kind of like a video game thing of, um, would you rather like a choose your weapon kind of thing? So would you rather in the event of a zombie apocalypse, you got one weapon to use, you can go for an ax, you can go for a chainsaw, or would you rather a gun? The most effective gun. I don't know guns very well, so like whichever gun is the best in the zombie apocalypse. I feel like you're gonna die either way, so like a chainsaw is actually <laughs> like a fun way to like kind of go out. You know, I I played what was it Left for Dead too? The chainsaw is definitely the most fun weapon, as long as you have gas. So I, I don't know if do I get unlimited gas? Sure, why not? Okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> chainsaw for sure. Dakota. Yeah, that's an interesting one because, you know, uh, with the chainsaw, you can run out of gas. With a gun, you can run out of bullets. Uh, and with an axe, you need to use your own physical strength in order to actually do any damage. Uh, I would I would probably still say gun just because you wielding an axe is exhausting. Has anyone ever chopped wood? It is really hard work. <laughs> uh, and with a chainsaw, you're going to get blood and guts all up in your face that like unless you're wearing like one of those like full covid suits with a mask and then a face shield you're getting brains in your mouth when you do that uh so so no thank you to that so i'm going to go with guns so i can at least have a bit of distance between uh me and my target i thought you'd pick gun jeff what about you thank you yeah i don't know what that means um but I'm, I'm I'm glad I get to go last on this one because initially, like, I was going to say Chainsaw basically for the same reason as Pierre. I think that would be the most fun. But uh, I have really weak arms, so I don't know if that would actually be... It would, it would be a lot to carry around and, like, 
I'm I'm not in good enough shape to have a lot of fun with a chainsaw. I think that like considering all three of these things, I would would be skill new skills I'd have to learn. I'd rather learn how to use a shotgun. So I think that I would probably go gun because it's uh, in in the case of a zombie apocalypse, it seems like it would be just as fun. I think that the uh, I think the um, skill of learning to use a shotgun would be at least as useful as learning to use a chainsaw. And, you know, as Dakota said, you don't get blood and guts all over you. You can kind of keep a distance. You don't have to get right up in a zombie's face and risk whatever that ends up meaning. So I would go probably gun as well. I'm with Pierre on Team Chainsaw. I think it'd be the most fun. And I did base it off a video game as well. I was thinking like Resident Evil, where it's the most fun. Like that's the best weapon to use because it's just fun. And, you know, you build up your strength, build up your skills in it. In a zombie apocalypse, I feel like if you were really unfit, you probably would be, you'd be done pretty early anyway. So assuming that you're still in it and you're still in the game, I feel like a chainsaw would be the, uh, maybe not the best weapon, maybe the most efficient weapon, but it would be the best way to go out. My question actually also is a little bit inspired by Shaun of the Dead, like Pierre's. Uh, So... Assuming you have a basically zombie loved one, would you rather keep your zombie loved one chained up to go on hikes or chained up to go play video games like in Shaun of the Dead? When you say go on hikes, is I mean like in Life After Bath, okay. go on a hike. I'm just going to stick with video games because it's just sedentary and, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, you just sit there and you play video games. You can have a weapon nearby as well, like really close to you if they ever get out of hand. Yeah, I'm just going to stick with that. I'm going stick to stick with play video games. I think I'd say video games. No, I think I'd say hikes. Um, I feel like video games, like it's implied you're in like a room. And if something bad happens, you don't really have much like space to maneuver, I guess. Um, especially if you're like trying to finish the game. Then like, <laughs> it'd be really awkward if you had to like didn't press save or whatever so i think hiking would be better but i also hate hiking so uh, but for the sake of my safety i'd say hiking <laughs> see i'm gonna say video games but also for the sake of my safety i feel like there's a lot that can go wrong hiking because like you know you have someone chained up to do one of these two things right but uh hiking by design you're going to have to unchain them. So if this is a zombie that can like run around, you know, you can only have them restrained so much during a hike. Um, And I just, I just feel like there's way too much that can go wrong during a hike. So if I had to pick one of the two, I would definitely go video games. Yes. A lot can go wrong, but like we're dealing with a situation with zombies. A lot can go wrong by default. I think a hike, there's a lot more that can go wrong. At least that I would worry to worry about. Fair enough. What about you, Dakota? Maybe this is the maybe this is the Vancouver and me talking, <laughs> but I would probably choose hikes, uh, just because I I feel like that's a bit of a better activity to do. Whereas with the video game, I can already beat up on my brothers pretty easily while playing video games. So like, I don't need to beat a dead person at video games. But they're not dead. They're like a living dead. The undead, sorry. You know, slightly different. <laughs> you moved to Vancouver for like uh, not even a year, and now you're just all Mr. Hikey McHikerson over there. 
Yeah, and and uh, and Jeff has apparently lost all of his Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, I'm a real Toronto guy now. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that wraps it up. Jeff and Pierre, thank you so much for coming on the show Thanks, today. Guys. Where can people follow you and find your work? Uh, so we're on Spotify where we have classic movies live. That's everything is under the classic movies live banner on Spotify, but we've got losing it over Leo where we talk about Leonardo DiCaprio movies. We got kicking it with Kendrick where we talk about Anna Kendrick movies. We've got CML classics where I'm working on uploading all of our, uh, old episodes to Spotify. And then of course we have classic movies live, the original where, we talk about movies uh, that just came out. And I believe that if you're hearing this, when, when people are hearing, if people are hearing this right as it comes out, our next episode of Classic Movies Live should be either Licorice Pizza or Coda. We're trying to go through all of our, um, we're trying to go through anything that's likely to be a Best Picture nominee right now. And... I think we've been doing pretty good. We'll we'll see how things shake out once the Best Picture nominees are actually announced for the Oscars. Well, excellent. And people for the last uh, four episodes, including this one, have also been hearing an ad for the Classic Movies Live. So hopefully they've already been checking your work out uh, and, and listening along to all this great stuff that you produce. Rachel, uh, where can listeners find more of your work too? You can go to rachelkh.com. Um, all my socials are underscore Rachel KH. I just finished Sundance. So there's a lot of Sundance stuff um, around a lot of reviews and an interview that I still need to get up, but it will be up by, by the time that this is out there. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a whole lot of Sundance fun the last week. Awesome. Uh, for our last A24 retrospective, uh, we had uh, some listener feedback. We had Brody Cottenham suggest Dead Ringers, while Callum McNabb of Scare Traducing suggested two Pedro Almodovar films in Bad Education in the Skin I Live In to go with Enemy. Once again, Jeff and Pierre, thank you so much for coming on and make sure everyone checks out our appearance on Classic Movies Live to hear us talking about the voices coming out in a few days from now. You can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you have seen the film distributed by A24, let us know your thoughts. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there too. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.